Hello, and welcome to Edwards Laboratory Talk podcast. I'm Dan Rutherford, and I've worked in multiple roles during my 24 years at Edwards. I'm currently the market sector manager for analytical OEMs. I'm David Steele. I'm a market sector manager for R&D, and I've been involved in the vacuum technology industry for about 35 years, about 25 years of that at Edwards. All right. Well, Dave, welcome back. Again, we don't have Todd with us today, um, but that's okay. He's uh, he's probably off creating some uh, devious capture pump stuff, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about next time. But today we're going to talk about secondary pumps. So, Again, just like we did with primary pumps, let's uh, let's start at what you would define as a secondary pump, David. Yeah, we'll start off with a with a sort of a definition. So, generally speaking, what we're talking about with a secondary pump is uh, a pump that's capable of very low ultimate pressures, less than ten to the minus three millibar, maybe going down as low as ten to the minus nine, ten to the minus ten, ten to the minus eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are pumps that cannot exhaust directly to atmospheric pressure. So this is a pump pumping technology that only operates efficiently or even at all at exceedingly low pressures where we're in the transitional or molecular flow regime. Well, and because we're operating in that molecular flow regime, we're also going to talk here about some of the design considerations you need to have when selecting these pumps. Because we, one of the things we do have to watch out for, and you'll probably hear us say numerous times in the future, is we have to look at our conductance here. Um, David and I, like we said before, we're looking at when we recommend pumps to people, whether it's a primary or a secondary pump, we look at the pump that will fulfill their needs but within a reasonable price budget, we don't want to over-engineer the system. And you could take a very large turbo pump and end up with very small performance. So we'll make sure we hit on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so in this in this range, so 10 to minus three, you're looking at, like I said, uh, uh, or better, we're looking at microscopy, mass spectrometry, coding. Um, the whole high-energy yeah. physics sector. High-energy physics. Yeah. Yep. yep, satellite testing. I mean, there's a massive mm-hmm. variety of, yeah, of scientific applications, not to mention um, industrial applications. Most semiconductor processes get actually carried out using secondary pumps. Exactly. Coating yep. and so on. So, and, and when you, and you mentioned space, uh, that's one of the big fields that's really getting exciting right now. There's a lot of different space applications out there that uh, the Edwards designs vacuum systems for mm-hmm. uh, with, with both primary and secondary pumps on board. So it's it's a very rapidly growing field. You got SpaceX and everybody else out there playing around. So, so if we're looking at secondary pumps, typically what falls into this market for us in the laboratory pumps here is diffusion pumps and turbo pumps. Mm-hmm. So Diffusion pumps you don't see a lot of anymore, but they still they, they exist out there, and and they have their benefits too. I mean, it's there there's uh, they're very simple, uh, they're very low cost, they have excellent compression for light gases. So, but but these pumps were founded back in the early 1900s. You remember what they started using to pump those, Dave? Um, they. They started out using mercury as yeah. the working fluid, and I mean they really are very simple. You, if you had a workshop um, with basic metal working skills, like very basic metal working mm-hmm. skills, almost like a blacksmith's workshop, you could build even today a diffusion pump. Um, it's basically a boiler, which the working fluid sits in. Um, the working fluid's heated by an electric heater, 
And as it vaporizes at very low pressure, it gets forced up through what's called a jet stack. It looks like a little ups, up, up, upturned funnel. Funnels. And because there's almost no gas in there, because we've already roughed it out, it gets fired downwards at exceedingly high speed, approaching the speed of the gas molecules, in training those gas molecules back into the base of the pump, where they can then get ejected out into your primary pump. Dead simple. It is very simple. And like you see, you see sometimes jet assemblies do, you know, they come in single assemblies, multiple assemblies, but these are so easy. I remember my first days of vacuum, I was taking these apart and cleaning them and and repairing them. They're just dead simple to to do, but not so simple to operate sometimes. Um, And they do have their their down points too. I mean, we made, we, there are diffusion pumps out there that can do 50,000 liters per second. Of course, it takes a lot of power. You have to definitely have water cooling. In fact, what's the largest pump you've ever seen without without air cool, with water cooling, Dave? Probably I without think the, the air biggest air-cooled right. diffusion pump I think I've seen is around 100 liters a second. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking back of the uh, the uh, EO fifty sixty was probably one of the few we had, and then we had the uh, we moved SI on up one hundred, yeah, yeah, SI one hundred, and then we moved on to the, uh, the 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 diff stacks, which were about I think started at three hundred and moved to seven hundred liters, but those of course required water cooling at that point, mm-hmm. but but they're they can get some very good speeds and some relatively small sizes, but again you do have there are there are very distinct rules you have to have about operating a diffusion pump uh, where you would, you know, because you have to make sure your critical backing pressure is met or you're going to get stalling of the pump. So these pumps typically require backing pressures better than what, 0.1 millibar, Dave? Yep. Yeah. So pretty low backing pressures. And I think the the biggest, the several weaknesses to a diffusion pumping technology in terms of their practical use, Mm -hmm. um, if something goes wrong in the vacuum area, whether the backing pressure is too low or the gas load in the inlet, it creates a huge mess because the oil <laughs> that's inside the pump gets yeah. everywhere in a flash. So before right. be- almost before the gauging can react to the problem, you've got a mess. It's done. And yeah, it's done. And I think fundamentally that was one of the things that sort of killed off diffusion pumping technology. The other is the amount of power that it takes mm-hmm. because – because of the way it works, every watt of power that you put in, you have to take out in cooling. So they're always running at max power. So they're very energy hungry um, by orders of magnitude compared to a modern turbomolecular pump. Well, in the, in the in the days right now, you're starting to see glass coating systems. I should say, probably five, ten years ago, we saw glass coating systems start to change over from these inexpensive uh, diffusion pumps mm-hmm. to relatively expensive magnetically levitated turbo pumps. And the reason they could do that was is because these guys were having to run their own power plant on site, a megawatt of power or more to support all the diffusion pumps they had. And you can do it now with a fraction of the power. Um, so it is a huge huge savings when you call it that and again you got to have the water to keep it cool it is an, it makes it a very kind of industrial environment another thing you have to have too in order to reduce some of that uh chance for the oil backstreaming even during normal operation you'll see cold caps or optical optical baffles used to mm-hmm. reduce that chance of the oil making it back up to your system but then that those caps and those baffles 
they impact the conductance that we're talking about, you know, so they, they're going to cause a slower speed. So it's not something we see a lot today in the laboratory spaces. Uh, even in mass spectrometry, they used to use the small uh, diffusion pumps to get folks in the door with the, on the GCMS systems, and then they bring them up to a turbo. Well, now today, because the turbo prices have come down within reason, and they're so simple to operate, you'll start to see now we have small turbos and large turbos on the entry-level GCMS systems. So let's move on to, since we don't see them too much more, let's move on to the turbo molecular pumps, or as we refer to as turbo pumps. So in those, we have it, the, the debate is mechanical turbos versus maglev. Now, obviously, in the laboratory environment, we see, I would say, 95% or more mechanical bearings. Mm -hmm. so. this, is, this is another one where it's difficult to make generalizations, mm -hmm. but generally speaking, um, maglev turbo pumps, um, certainly from an Edwards perspective, uh, we tend to um, put maglev bearings in the turbos that are being used in the most aggressive environments, mm -hmm. um, mainly because turbo pumps are running at exceedingly high speeds, and to try and manage a mechanical bearing with really nasty environments, perhaps an environment where you need to heat the body of the pump itself just to stop material condensing in them, it's much, much easier and more, more reliable to do that with a maglev bearing than with a mechanical bearing. Um, also, the sort of a size thing, mm -hmm. too, where um, it gets more and more complicated trying to spin a rotor at really high speed with a mechanical bearing. So there's right. there's not a hard limit, but it does cross over there a little bit. Yeah, you typically don't see maglevs below 300 liters per second. And again, right. because of yep. the rotational speeds that you, you have to achieve there. Where with turbos, uh, at the at Edwards, we have our NEXT 55 and our NXT 85 size pumps, which rotate at 90,000 RPMs, which, which would be a little bit difficult for a, a maglev. Some other applications we see that are in the laboratory would be uh, microscopy. The beauty of the maglev is because you don't have a mechanical bearing there, they're very low vibration. Um, people love the people that happen to find a maglev pump and they stick it on an application that really doesn't require it. They like it because they last forever in those, in those benign applications. There's, there's no contact. So there's very long life. And as Dave said, the harsh environment, but yeah. again, most of our field is, is ceramic bearings or mechanical bearing type pumps. So they're much lower cost. They typically are smaller in size. We have really good light gas compression with those pumps because, again, with the maglev, you have to maintain that axial clearance in the rotor so we can get those with a with a, with a mechanical pump, you can get that much closer. Uh, and they can handle those higher speeds too. So we make everything now between what I think is 55 liters a second and 1,230 liters per second in mechanical bearing. Yep. So there's been a lot of changes over the years. Dave, you've probably been around to remember – back when turbo pumps used stain, uh, used stainless steel balls in the bearings instead of ceramics, don't you? I'm just about, Dan, so thank you for reminding me how old I am. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, in, in the very early days, that's all that was available. Um, it was a piece of technology. Ceramic ball bearings were a piece of technology mm -hmm. invented for the space industry, um, very high-speed turbines, that type of thing perfect for a turbo molecular pump and it really did revolutionize mechanical turbo pumps maglev pumps have been around in the mass market for longer than mechanical bearing turbos and it really boiled down to the 
uh, to the bearing. Um, once right. ceramic bearings came along, the, the little balls that actually support the bearing are smoother, harder, and lighter. And it meant going from six months, maybe, with a mechanical steel bearing to two years and even four years or more now with mechanical ceramic ball bearing. So that it revolutionized the uh, small turbo pump market. Well, back then too, back in the older days uh, with the stainless steel ball bearings, you used to see people use standby modes in turbos instead of shutting them down. Mm. Um, and because you get the electrolytic action between the the ball and the raceway of the bearing, um, so you would have to worry about that. You'd have to, you know, they want to keep the pump running, but at a reduced speed to improve its life. So these days, it's not as big of a concern because they are ceramic. So that's one thing I've noticed since my few years in the business. Um, but there, things have come a long ways with with mechanical bearing pumps, um, and there are some benefits that we do besides the cost. Um, we um, the the beauty of these pumps is we can, of course, by by looking at the lubrication systems and optimizing blade geometries, we can come up with some pretty unique pumps. Uh, so, for example, the split flow pumps that we sell into the mass spectrometry market, um, the NEXT line, we have a whole caveat you know just whether it's a cartridge pump or horizontal envelope or um, what we call a moon boot version we can do we what we used to be able to have to do with three or four turbos a day we can do with a single turbo pump running off of a single drive motor so it saves the customer a lot of money in the long run and you get a lot of design flexibility with your system yeah it is quite remarkable that we can replace two even three or more turbo pumps with a single multiple inlet turbo pump, not to mention the power supplies and the controllers, mm -hmm. you know, the electronics to run it. It really is quite a remarkable achievement. It's 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 altered the mass spec market for sure in, in a dramatic way over the last 25 years, I guess. Yeah, yeah, very dramatic way. And the beauty of it is, too, is these are relatively low power. People tend to think that these pumps take a lot of power to run. But if you look at it, I mean – uh, what we consider a high power for a turbo would be the same as a hundred watt light bulb in a house. Mm -hmm. um, so it, they they typically like uh, uh, one of our 300 liter per second pumps. If you pump down a chamber and you're sitting there ultimate, it's probably going to be drawing 20 watts of power when it gets when it's running at full speed just to maintain that, which is very low powers for it. And the beauty of that is, of course, you have lower heat that is generated from it. And and the one thing to if I was to say one thing about turbo pumps. Cooling is one of the most important things you can do with the turbo pump. You always have to consider the cooling um, because if you look at the life of the pump and you compare to the heat that it's uh, that it, that it's operating in, you know the temperature that the bearing is at. The higher the temperature of the bearing, the shorter the life is. So um, that's where it's important to understand it. If you're baking a pump, you're typically want going to want to have water cooling because you want to watch that flange temperature that you have. Uh, if you have higher gas flows, you're going to want water cooling. But we can do we can do some pretty high gas flows even with air cooling. But we just need to make sure that we protect the pump from a temperature standpoint. Mm. So I'm I've got to say I'm I'm something of a of a. Uh, a to, to mix my words up, I'm a fan of fan cooling. Most <laughs> of our mechanical bearing turbos can be what we call ambient cooled mm -hmm. in most applications, where it's just you know air currents moving over the pump. I really like just to put a fan on, and if yeah, it's not going to hurt, if it's not going to hurt the application, like if it's a really vibration sensitive application, um, then yeah, you have to come up with another solution. But for most, a little small fan on there, it's um, 
yep. it's good insurance is the way I, I usually describe it. Agree a hundred percent. And I recommend it every single time. So looking at turbos, Dave, looking at actually secondary pumps in general, mm. um, I have in mind the the biggest error I see people make when they when they pick a turbo pump or a or a a diffusion pump, but these days let's say turbo pump, and let's see if yours matches mine. What do you think the biggest mistake people make when when designing their system and picking a pump? Should we both write it down on a piece of paper and see if we pick the same thing? <laughs> I'm showing yeah. it to you. You can see it. it starts with the it, C. Uh, <laughs> it's it. My, I I think Dan is going to write down connecting a turbo pump with a long skinny pipe to what they <laughs> uh, what it's going to be used on. Conductance exactly. Conductance exactly. Yep. I've. Uh, the, you know, for 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 these turbo pumps to get the, a lot of people have a, a misconception about molecular flow, what you're actually seeing here, and and what impacts pumping speed. Um, people don't realize I've done models for people, gas models for people that that show, um, you know, they they tell me they want a 300 liter per second pump, and then they tell me they're going to neck it down to an NW40 inlet, and then. And then hook a meter-long tube to it and connect it to a chamber. And I said, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you just start with an NW40 pump that's much smaller, like an NEXT85? And they say, well, I want that pumping speed. And what they don't realize is you're not going to get it. You could hook a 2,000 liter per second turbo up to the end of that pipe, and you're still going to get the same performance that an NW40 turbo would get. Mm. So. So, and I think it's an it's an understandable mistake to make because mm -hmm. with a primary pump, you can actually run your primary pump quite a long way from yeah. your system. With yeah. there's always some loss with pipe work, but provided you keep the diameter a reasonable size and don't make it too long, it's minimal. It's you know it's it's in the noise of the other variables in the system. But with a turbo pump, it's dramatic. Even a even a short length of pipe, you know two or three times the diameter of the pipe, you might be losing half your effective pumping speed by the time you get to the point of use, you know, your actual vacuum system. Well, when you're looking at the mean free path of a molecule at these pressures that we're talking about, there's actually a better chance for that molecule to hit the wall of a chamber than to hit any other molecule that's in that chamber. That's mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here. So that So when you're talking about the diameter of the inlet, you know, so if the first of all, the best place to mount your turbo is or your diffusion pump is directly to the chamber you want to pump as close as possible. So short and wide is better. And the reason wide is better too is that at that inlet is the probability that that molecule is going to hit that part of the wall that is basically the inlet to the turbo. So the bigger the diameter, the bigger chance probability it has to find its way into the turbo. But then even once it gets in the turbo, people have a gross conceptual error that we just suck the gas right through. But it's not. It's basically like, a, I guess, a pinball machine in there. The, the molecule comes in, it resides on a turbo blade, gains enough energy, and then comes off at a certain angle. Uh, and those angles, you know, you have different probabilities of what angle it'll come off. But eventually, based on our design of our turbos, you know, we, we work to get that gas molecule to find its way down the exhaust and leave the system. Mm. Um, if you look at leak detectors, we actually excel at running gases like helium because they move very fast. We look at the, pro you know, the, the ability to run it the helium from the from the exhaust of the turbo pump back up through the inlet to the detector, so some molecules have a better chance than others. Light gases can can easily 
uh, go backwards through a turbo. I so. think getting the, the concept with um, in the high vacuum regime that the turbo pump itself or diffusion pump or mm -hmm. when we do our capture pumps thing, cryos or, or iron pumps, the pump, at, you can't make the pump influence the likelihood of the gas molecules going into it. All you can do is when the gas molecules go into it, make sure that they don't come back out of it That's again. Right. Or at least the chance of that happening is exceedingly low. Right. Uh, and once you sort of get that concept um, into your head, the, the rest of things like geometry become easier. Now, that said, sometimes there are just physical limitations that mean the pump is going to have to be spaced away. And mm -hmm. the advice that I always try to give is try and keep the distance as short as possible, try and keep the diameter at least the size of the inlet of the pump itself. Exactly. And if you do need to flange it down, you know, if your system's just got a small connection on it, flange down to it as close as possible with the shortest possible adapter. And exactly. that, that's that you'll make that you'll make the best compromise with that. Vacuum systems are always a compromise of things and that's the best compromise that you can make in that situation. Exactly. Uh, and just like I said earlier, short and wide. Short so and wide, yep, that's it. Describes my life to a T. So um, <laughs> some other things to point out about the pumps, it's also important. Um, we look at the flange types that we have here. So typically, we, you know, with the, with the turbo pumps, we do have some very small pumps with NW flanges. Mm -hmm. um, but the majority we're looking at ISO flanges or Conflat. So the differences you have there, of course, is the if you're looking at a pump that you're going to a system that you're going to bake out, then then you're going to want to go with a metal flange pump. Um, you know, it's, again, because you got to watch that that uh, you got to be careful of the temperature you have on the inlet flange to begin with, but you don't want to damage those fluorelastomer type seals that you would use on an ISO type pump. Um, and typically, you get a better uh, vacuum seal with those with those soft metal gaskets that you're going to use in a conflat type pump. Yeah. Anything else if you think on that? Um, really, that it just boils down to a decision of O-rings versus mm -hmm. metal seals. And O-rings actually do modern vacuum yeah, rated so O-ring seals. Too. Much easier to connect. You can dismantle them easy, mm -hmm. easily and, and reassemble them easier. There's a lot less clamps that you need. And if you're operating a system that's at a going down to a pressure of maybe 10 to the minus eight, there really isn't the, the benefits of going from a vacuum perspective of going to a metal seal are kind of small. Um, once you get to sort of that kind of level, that changing the outgassing characteristics and the permeability, especially mm -hmm. for helium and hydrogen, um, to a moving to a, a metal seal is dramatic. And, and like you said, Dan, baking. If you need to bake a system, then it, metal seals is the way yeah. to go. And, uh, but, but you're exactly right, David. If you're going to be, be if you're going to be above ten to the minus eight, you know, uh, do yourself a favor and and stick with the the uh, O-ring seals. Um, you will the first time you have to drop that turbo pump back down, you'll you'll appreciate it after what's a typical copper gasket even for uh the iso 100 sizes is probably what 15 20 bucks yeah they, you know? they can get expensive you know? and there's a lot of bolts to, to undo and do up as and well do, undo and do up well do up in the right pattern to make sure yep. that that seal works properly so yeah all right well i think we've drummed on enough about this right now for today we'll we'll probably have again more podcasts in the futures uh talking 
about specific uh, types of turbo pumps and their benefits and uh, some design of it. I know in the future we're going to look at um, having a, a, a podcast on how we uh, design our bespoke turbo pumps for uh, specialty mass spectrometer systems with our with the people in our bespoke product development team. So we'll do that. Um, David, what are we going to go over next? I think we're going to do capture pumps. I think we're going to do capture pumps. So I think we'll be talking about cryo pumps and uh, and uh, iron getter pumps will be the, okay. the next podcast. All right. Well, uh, until that time, if you have any, you know, if you have any questions, if you'd like to reach out with us with these questions, please send, feel free to send us an email to podcast at edwardsvacuum.com. If you need any technical assistance from our tech support folks, you can email them at info at edwardsvacuum.com. Until next time, this has been Dan and Dave from the Edwards Laboratory Vacuum Talk podcast. Thank you.